when you know news did come out, there were people that did walk away from our family. There were people that dropped our friendship immediately. Really? And I had to realize looking back, at the time it was very, very hard. And these were people that we spent our holidays with. Mm. But I had to realize that actually said more about them than it said about me. Welcome to Stories of Hope in Hard Times, the show that explores how people endure and even thrive in difficult times, all with God's help. I'm your host, Tamara K. Anderson. Join me on a journey to find inspiring stories of hope and wisdom learned in life's hardest moments. My guest today is a mother of seven, has worked five years as a radio show host. She is a history buff, a tropical island votary. She parasails, skydives, snorkels, scuba dives, and has taken, but not passed, pilot training. She writes from the 100-acre wood in Indiana and is the best-selling author of 29 books, including The Slave Across the Street, Slavery in the Land of the Free, Bonding with Your Child Through Boundaries, Homeless for the Holidays, and Chasing Sunrise. I am pleased to introduce Peggy Sue Wells. Peggy Sue, are you ready to share your story of hope? Yeah, and it's so nice for you to have me on your program. I appreciate that, Tamara. Thank you. Well, we're excited to have you today. And I thought we'd dive in with a little known fact about you, that you were in an outhouse during an earthquake. Tell me a little bit about that. That has got my curiosity peaked. (laughs) It was a a big, big earthquake. Um, When I was a kid, my grandmother, there was a place in Southern California, not too far from the Mexican border, and it was called the Salton Sea. And it was the place to have a cabin and go water skiing. And it's in pretty bad disrepair right now. So, you know, but back in its heyday, it was the spot. And I was down there and I had these little, remember those jumpsuits that we pulled up from the bottom and you had Mm -hmm. the slipper, so it's a one piece. So I was in the outhouse and this very large earthquake that rocked Mexico just in a big way. And my outhouse started swaying back and forth. (laughs) I was like, oh Lord, the last place I want to be if this thing goes down is here. So I come barreling out of that thing. I was probably nine years old, but yeah, it kind of like left the mark. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my goodness gracious. I bet you were afraid to go back in after that. (laughs) (laughs) You know, later on I was pregnant with my son and we were living in California when the great big one that came through, um, the, the Bay Area and broke the bridge there. And I remember we had just come home from a field trip and I was exhausted and I flopped out on the bed and my three girls were, you know, around me and we were just reviewing what we had seen and that house started rocking so hard. And, you know, we're from California. You just ride them out. It's not a big deal, but sometimes they're big. Mm. So we come running out. And I remember as we ran past our swimming pool in our backyard, the water was literally coming out of the swimming pool and getting us wet as we went by. Wow. And, yeah, welcome to California. And then yeah. I moved here to Indiana and people say, oh my gosh, how do you do the tornadoes? And I'm like, hey, we did earthquakes. <laughs> <laughs> tornadoes, you can see common. You have some warning, but not the earthquakes. 
That is true. That is true. We've, we've lived in places that both have earthquakes and tornadoes as well. So I can sympathize a little bit. Oh my goodness. Well, we are thankful to have you on the show today and we're going to take a, a spin back in your history and talk a little bit about one of your hard times. Why don't you tell us a little bit about your divorce? When, you know, growing up, my grandmother had been divorced and my mother was divorced. And I, I think my aunt was divorced. My uncle's been divorced. I mean, it's like everybody on my mother's side of the family had experienced a divorce. And being a kid, as that happened, and my mother was divorced twice, um, it just was not fun. It wasn't anything I wanted to repeat. And I was determined that I was going to get married and live happily ever after. I was going to make this work. Mm. And um, it didn't. Uh, it, things started escalating and getting worse and worse. And uh, when my youngest of my seven kids was not quite two, she has no memory of her father living in the home. Um, but when she was not quite two, it just came to the point where, you know, he needed to leave. We all got together in the family room, all the children and me and him. And I said, you either have to stop being abusive or find another place to live. And I said, it's not good for you to treat me this way. It's not good for my son to think this is how men treat women. It's not good for my daughters to think this is how men treat women. You know, make, make a shift. And he chose to leave. And I have to say, the betrayal of that, I felt so heartbroken that I, you know, this was the one thing that I was going to do right in my life. And I didn't have a plan B. I did not have plan B. And mm -hmm. I would say part of what really was super, super hard about that was I felt so betrayed that someone that, you know, I had given my whole heart and love to didn't return that. And then I also felt just like not valuable because I felt like if I was valuable enough if I was that precious that he would make the effort to make it work and wow. I remember at one point one of my daughters said dad you know you courted mom once before why don't you just start over just you know date and court and you know win or win the marriage back and start over and he said you don't understand it's too hard and so you know 20 years later and I don't know how many times we've been to court and how many times we've been to mediation I mean it's been ugly and each time we have one of those things come up again, I'm like, really? This is easier? Because <laughs> it would have been easier to have worked it out. So, yeah, so that was, and I, because I was not prepared for it, because I did not expect it, because I was determined it was not going to happen, it was going to go the other way, I did not have a plan B, and I was absolutely devastated and didn't know where to go next. Mm. Oh, my goodness. I can only imagine how challenging that must have been. So what, what was your plan of action? What did you do once he left? I got really, um, first off, I went into crisis management mode and my kids were very embarrassed because now we were what was called by society, you know, a broken home and they didn't want their friends to know. And we knew in church that that was not going to go over well. And so they said, Mom, can we not tell anybody for a while? And I'm like, sure. And I really thought within six months, we would work it out and he'd come back anyway. So I was kind of okay with that. Looking back, it probably would have been better not to have kept that secret on top of all the others um, because we needed help. You know, we were in trauma and it might have been a lot better to have had people come around us. But 
again, just like kind of the, the, my daughter was in, um, a Christian university. We went to, you know, church all the time and divorce was just looked down upon. Like if you can't keep your marriage together, then you're not a good wife. But if your mm-hmm. children are in a bad situation, then you're not a good mom. And if you can't keep your marriage together, then you don't have enough faith. So you're not a good Christian. So, you know, it's like either way I was going to lose this one. And so I think that's what the children were sensing too. It was very hard. And, um, and again, this is 20 years ago. So things have come a long way. Mm-hmm. We now have one in four homes is a single parent led home. And, you know, that number just keeps rising as divorce keeps rising. And within the church, it used to be that the divorce numbers were smaller than they were outside the church, but they're not. They're easily neck and neck. And sometimes they're kind of creeping up a little bit, even above uh, families that are unchurched that don't attend. And the divorces that are coming out of churches a lot of times are more like mine. And they're very ugly. They're very toxic. And I think part of that is because there's such a stigma around it that we're holding on so tight and we're allowing things that shouldn't be allowed to happen until it escalates to a point where it's just brutal. It's just brutally ugly. So that was kind of the situation that we were in. And one of my daughters was taking a class at the college and, um, she had to show something in um, a way that people could see physically, not just verbally. So she took a chair and she sat it up at the front of the room and she said the story about, you know, her father had passed away. And, and then the, the class was supposed to show how socially we react to those things. So all the students came up and gathered around her and like, oh, we're so sorry. How can we be helpful? And so, you know, that was the demonstration. And then everybody went back and sat down. And then she sat there and she said, my dad left, you know, we, we have a, a home without our dad here and nobody got out of their seat. Everybody stayed there and she sat up there by herself and she started to cry and she said, this is my reality and this is how people treat us. It's just difficult. Wow. Um, Do you think it's the shame that's associated with it? Your, your feel inside that here I am, one of my life dreams is broken and has fallen apart, and and people just don't know how to react. Or you, and obviously this was twenty years ago. So I'm glad things are at a different place now. People generally know to be compassionate and to treat people with love as Jesus Christ would. Um, so why? I know you mentioned that um, you guys kept it quiet for a while. Do you think part of it was the shame of it all? Absolutely. There was, I would say, shame and humiliation and then just fear that we were going to be judged. Mm. And when, you know, news did come out, there were people that did walk away from our family. There were people that dropped our friendship immediately. Really? I had to realize looking back at the time, it was very, very hard. And these were people that we spent our holidays with. Mm. But I had to realize that actually said more about them than it said about me. But at the time, it didn't feel that way. But we do react based on, you know, what's going on inside of us. And I realized they had their issues with that whole situation. And who knows what had been in their past and, you know, what they were dealing with. Right. Wow. So what advice would you give to people who are witnessing a close friend go through a divorce? What advice would you give them? You know, one of my friends out in California, 
uh, well, Marianne, she's been one of my best friends. She said to me, I will walk with you every step of the way. And she has been good on that. And there was no judgment, no nothing, but I could call her those times that I needed to talk to somebody. I would call her and cry. I would call her and, and just be just, I cannot believe this. And she would, yeah, I don't believe it either. This is not how we saw your future going. But she just stayed there, no judgment. She didn't have to judge. She doesn't have to carry. She doesn't have to be responsible. She just stayed beside me. And that meant more probably than anything else. So I have probably three to five women that stayed with me through this and loved me and loved my family. And we are still very, very close. And I sometimes I was at an event last weekend and two of those close friends showed up and I said, if I'm saying it's because of them, <laughs> I'm so grateful for those friends that just said, you know, sometimes we have to understand that even if we're ma even if someone is making a bad choice, even if someone is doing something that's really not a good idea, that doesn't mean that we reject them. And then mm -hmm. there's other times that people are going through stuff that they have no control over. We don't want to be where we are, but we're stuck here. And it's really good to have a companion to go through the journey. Yeah. I really don't think God meant for us to go through all these hard times alone. And so it's good to see that you were able to build a support network of close friends to help you through it. And the thing too was there's been a stigma around divorce in the church. And I'm talking about the evangelical church because that's where mm -hmm. I've grown up and where I've hung out. And like Assembly of God, it used to be like the unforgivable sin was divorce. And I think they're coming through that now. But the thing that I had to go back to was I had to go back to scripture and I'm like, God, show me, show me, you know, is this really the unforgivable sin? <clears throat> and the truth is marriage is a contract. And uh, when, when a divorce happens, there has been a breach of contract. A part of that contract has been broken. And could God sin? God cannot sin, right? But God divorced his wife, which is, you know, the church, his bride. And in Jeremiah, there's a scripture where God says, I divorce my bride. And he did it because the bride had broken the covenant to the point that this wasn't like we're just going to be able to patch it over and keep going. There was a divorce. And God has had to do that a couple of times. And so I think if we can like shift it back to saying that this is a covenant, it's a contract between two people. And occasionally in marriage, just like outside of marriage in business, people break contracts. And some of those contracts can be mended back together. Some of them can be rewritten and some of them can't. And so with that kind of a viewpoint, I think we're going to be able to understand a lot better what kind of what we're looking at. Oh, that is a fantastic way of looking at that. Thank you for sharing that. So I know that you, you told me last week when we were talking that this began a really hard period for you and that you were able to find a mentor that kind of helped you through it all. Uh, why don't you describe where you were emotionally at that time and how she helped you process that? I had a, a friend in church who said she had been talking with some other women and if I would want to come by, she would be happy to talk with me too. And so I first off had found a, a counselor through my church. And I have to say, counseling is another thing we need to rework. Mm -hmm. My church is a mega church out here in Indiana and they had a counseling department which meant 
They had hired counselors. These people were on staff and they were on salary. So anybody could make an appointment with them. They can work with you if you need to see them once, three times, three years, whatever. They were available. And the thing about that is because they were on salary, they're not dependent on this person having to come back. And mm. the way counselors work outside that situation, and this was unique, is that I pay that counselor per hour, but then if that counselor is not booking enough patients or clients, they can't make their mortgage. So they're actually, we're dependent on each other. I'm dependent on the counselor to help me through my stuff. The counselor's dependent on me for finances. And so that mm -hmm. becomes, in my brain, really toxic. So mm -hmm. I loved how our church did it. I hope more churches will be able to do that soon. And then um, also then people from outside the church can come in sometimes and meet with those counselors. And then they become comfortable to know, I can come in the church building. It's not scary. There's people here that will help me. And then they become really that lighthouse in the community. So I saw a counselor there, Joe, who was absolutely wonderful. And then Joe had the audacity to retire. Like, what oh, is yeah. that about? Right? <laughs> but he was amazingly helpful. I did try a lot of counselors, and a lot of them just did not get it. They just couldn't figure out or fit or whatever. And it, they were almost more damaging than helpful. Joe was wonderful. And then I went to see my mentor, and I would sit at her table, and I would say, but he's supposed to do this, and it's supposed to be that way, and this is what the scripture says, and this is what the Bible says, and I'm doing it this way, so why isn't it working? And she had to stop me, and she says, look, um, well, the first, where we really made the changes, I would go in there about all kinds of things, my work, my kids, you know, the ex, you know, whatever. And we would have conversations. She'd get me like in a good place and I'd come back the next week. And finally, after about six months, she said, you know, if you want, Peggy Sue, you can keep coming back and we'll keep talking about your work and your kids and your ex and your <laughs> all that stuff. She said, or we can really do some hard work and dig down and get all of this fixed. And I pointed to myself. I said, you mean me? <laughs> and she <laughs> said, you are the one common denominator in all of these conversations. <laughs> And I have to tell you, I completely didn't see it. I did not see that. To me, everybody else was, was in the wrong, you know, and I was okay. So I said, yes. I said, clearly I'm, I'm failing at life. You know, I'd like to start getting some A's in this topic, so let's do it. And a counselor is not your friend. A counselor is someone who's going to do really deep, hard work with you. And so I just pushed in. I pressed in. And I used up boxes of Kleenex at her house, and it was worth every single tear. And interestingly, as I came out of each of our mentoring sessions, I felt lighter, and I felt known, and I felt loved, and I felt understood. I felt heard. You know, someone listened to me and heard me. Um, and what she finally said to me one day is, I'm saying, but, you know, Scripture says, and this is what's right, and this is how it's supposed to go. And she said, you're right. You're absolutely right. That's how God set it up. That's how the family is supposed to run. That's how things are supposed to go. She says, now, talk to me about your reality. Well, my reality wasn't anything to do with what it was supposed to be, which then brings me back to people, all people have experienced two things. We all experience pain, and we all need a Savior. And looking at the mess of my reality didn't fit with, you know, what I had hoped for or what scripture says was possible clearly i needed a savior we all need a savior and that's when we get into the story of jesus and how he comes in and he redeems all of our messes and cleans them up and makes everything so that it fits into his plan 
<clears throat> so we did a lot of hard work with me and I would say the bottom line is we dug down to all the lies that I believed, things that were not true about me, things that mm -hmm. were not true about God, things that were not true about life. And we dug those up and we replaced them with truth. And one of the best parts that happened through that is I was a very bitter person, very victim oriented and very bitter. And to see all that come out and the bitterness to go away. And then my oldest daughter had come down. She lives up in Michigan. She came down for a holiday and went to church with us. And my mentor was there and she went up and wrapped her arms around my mentor's neck. And she said, thank you for us back our mom. And that was when I really realized just how much into just the ugliness and the bitterness that I had allowed myself to go rather than what I would look what if I could do it over again, I would say now, you know, so what now what? In other words, that's what's happened. This is where I am. How do I move forward? And I would have dropped the bitterness and dropped the, what everybody else is supposed to do sooner and move forward with a healthier life. Mm. Um. It almost sounds like you you had to go through the grieving process for this loss of expectations that you had of how your life was going to turn out. And sometimes I think it does take time to process a change in life, a change in expectations. And, and I'm glad that you had somebody to walk that path with you and help you get it all out and then move forward with healing. There has yeah. to be a safe place to be able to let out all the ugliness and mm -hmm. have someone who can hear that and be okay with it. You know, hear yeah. that and be able to not judge and not be offended, but just to go, I understand. I understand that's how you feel right now. Yeah. Oh, what a... So she was your angel. <laughs> I've had a couple I've had a couple and my friend in California that you know my Marianne friend she will remind me that person's been an angel in your life that person's been your angel there and that's good to remember it is it's good to remember that God often sends people to help us along our detoured path but if I do not have the eyes to see it I will miss it and if I'm so busy being so self-focused and so self-centered and so wallowing in my pain that I'm not going to see it. And that's what's really good to have a guide that helps bring us out, bring me out of that bitterness and out of that pain and out of that wallowing and to see, oh, there really is a world out here. There is life still to be celebrated. Oh, yes, absolutely. Oh, my goodness. So you found... I guess the first lesson is that God is at work in all of this, you know? That's, the, that's, I say that over and over and over again. God is at work even in this. God is still at work even in this. And the times that I don't see things and that I don't see what's happening, that's when he really is working. And he is always in control. And that was one of the lies that I had to let go of. I really thought that my divorce had snuck up on him and, my marriage and my family blowing apart was a surprise to him because he was, you know, just not paying attention. And the other lie that I had was that God is capable of doing anything. He's very powerful. He's very strong. He can do it. And Tamara, I know he's going to do it for you. And I know he's going to do it for my neighbor, but I know he's going to withhold from me. 
And so that was another lie that I had to, you know, we had to dig down and we had to find it. We had to pull it back up and no, God loves me. He loves me as much as he loves everyone else. And I am as worthy of that as all the others that I know are worthy of it. So yeah, a lot of lies to dig up and be able to understand who God is. And once we totally understand who God is, then he's worthy of our trust. He's worthy of me being able to put all my weight on him and to know that he is who he says he is. So now I know that when what I'm thinking doesn't line up with what God says in his word, the, the part that's messed up is going to be there's a lie somewhere that I've got buried in there that I need to get pulled up. Mm, that is so true. That is so true. There are so many things that we tell ourselves in our head that you're right, that we don't think are true for anybody else. It's just us. That's us. Yeah. And you know, we were, I was in Bible study the other night and they were talking about what would happen if Eve wouldn't have eaten the apple. I shot at my hand. I said, I would have, it would have come down to me and I would have <laughs> it. And you know, I grew up for so long wondering why did Eve do that? But I understand now why Eve did it. It was the same lie that I believed. You know, the, the apple looked good. It looked good to eat. It would give her things that she didn't have, you know, the knowledge of good and evil. It would make her like God. It was something that she wanted. And she felt that God was withholding something good from her. And so mm. she needed to get it herself. And I'm like, oh, that is so me. <laughs> like, you know, I have to catch myself thinking God's withholding from me. He's not. Mm. That's the lie that I have to, have to work out. Right. Oh, I love that. So what, what is another lesson that you learned through all this? Okay, let me set you up here with one morning. I, um, Saturday morning, my daughter's home and she's grousing around the house. She's just grumpy and grousing. And so I tell a few jokes and I make her her favorite tea and then I make her her favorite pancakes. And she sits down at the table and she pushes a pancake around on the plate and she ignores her tea and she's not laughing at my jokes. Okay? Mm -hmm. So in that setting, what am I thinking? How am I feeling? I'm feeling like, wow, she'd rather be anywhere else than here. I must suck as a mom. And this is like really awful. So now I'm feeling rejected. So, and I don't like feeling rejected. So that makes me feel resentful because I'm feeling resentful that she's rejected me. And so then because I'm feeling that way, I'm like, well, okay, well, she's going to give me the silent treatment. I'm going to give her the silent treatment, right? And then I go into resistance. That's resistance. I'm not going to make eye contact. I'm not going to talk. I'm not going to interact. And then I go into revenge. So like, well, I'm hurting because of how you're treating me. Well, you need to know how this feels. So then it's really easy to go, so when are you going to clean that bathroom? You know, hey, have you been doing your homework? You need to keep those grades above sea level, you know, right? So that's that revenge. You hurt me. I'm going to make you hurt as well so you know how I'm feeling. And then when we're in a family or long-term relationships, we go into repeat. We just repeat this cycle over and over and over again. And those have become the five R's. And I've learned a lot about living in the five R's, recognizing them, and then getting out of them as quickly as possible. So the five R's are rejection. Everything starts with rejection. And that's where I was with the marriage. You know, the, the, the husband leaves. I feel like so, so, so rejected. And it took me a long time to get out of that. So there's rejection, then you move into resentment because you don't like being rejected. Then you go into resistance to that person that is feeling, 
you feel is rejecting you, then we move into revenge, then we move into repeat, and then we just can repeat the cycles over and over. And so that's where you can go sometimes to holidays where people don't want to go to the family holiday. I mean, we like the turkey mm -hmm. and we like the pie, but the emotional abuse is just not worth it. So, you know, people say we all sat around the table and emotionally abused one another and then had pie. And that's a family that is in the five R's and it's all fixable. But first we have to recognize it. Mm. So what I did luckily is I didn't give my daughter the silent treatment that day. And I did not talk to her about her bathroom or cleaning her room that day. But in the past I would have. And mm. what I did this time instead was I said, honey, the story I'm telling myself in my head right now is that you would rather be anywhere else in the world than here with me because I'm just like the stinkiest mom on the planet. And she kind of blinks, you know, and looks up at me. And she's like, mom, I just found out the little boy I babysit for has leukemia. Right? Mm. So truth bomb, it's not all about me. People are not acting the way they're acting because they're reacting to me. They have their own lives that they're living and they're doing the best they can where they are. So what I had to realize was a lot of the things that were happening in our family, because even without a dad here, we are still a family. Mm -hmm. Our identity is we are still a family. So how do we be a healthy family? And so we had rules here that you don't say unkind things to one another. We don't call one another bad names. You can have fun nicknames, but nothing that's going to be harmful. You don't take somebody's stuff. With, you, know, you always ask permission. You don't just take it. Um, if you do have somebody's stuff and you wreck it, then you replace it even better than what it was. So we had some nice little gentle rules. And also somebody, because there's so many dynamics around having an absent parent, that there's sometimes where one child is in a good relationship with that parent and they're fine, and another child is being rejected, and another mm -hmm. child is angry, and another child is depressed all based on the relationship that's going on because their family is not in the state that it's supposed to be in. So we set up a rule that said, I understand that you're gonna all be feeling differently. So you're allowed to feel your feelings. You are not allowed to take your feelings out on us or on anyone else. You're not allowed to say to the person who's not happy right now that they have to happy up. Or the person who's not in a good relationship with the absent spouse, parent, that they have to suddenly flip it around. You can't do that because they're living a different relationship. So those are some of the rules that we put up that worked out okay, but then we needed to learn about the five R's. And mm. the rejection is the one that happens first off, and then it's like then spin into resentment, and then the others. So here's the thing. Before you get into the five R parade, what I've learned is this is the key to not start. The key to not start is that I need to just take a look at the facts. The facts were I had a daughter who was grousing and sullen around the house on a Saturday morning. That was the fact. If I leave that fact alone, we're okay. And then unless she says it's about me, I can just assume it's not about me. Or if I really want to double check, I can say, hey, babe, is there something up that you know I need to know about that I need to fix? And she can yes or no that. Um, but if I stick to the facts and think about this at work, I mean, who got the promotion, who didn't get the promotion, you know, who's buddied up with so-and-so and who's not, and who got that account, and why was that account taken away from me, and that sort of thing. Again, we can make up these stories in our head, and making up the story is what then becomes my reality, and that's how then I react to you. And 
like with my daughter, generally it has nothing to do with the truth whatsoever, but it becomes our truth and we mm -hmm. live that. So the rejection always, if I could remember to stick to the facts, the fact being this happened. The fact is this is what's going on. Um, I was a big family event and I was not recognized in the place that I should have been recognized in. I can now make up a story about that, again, about my mm -hmm. worthiness or about their relationship with me or they don't want me involved or they like somebody else better or whatever. Or I can say, okay, the fact is, this is where I am. The fact is I was invited. The fact is I'm part of it. The fact is this is their event. They can do it however they want to do it. Mm -hmm. And who knows what their reasons are? I don't know. And so my facts are, this is where I am. I can make a choice. I can pout and ruin it, or I can go, hey, let's dance. This is great, right? Mm -hmm. So it's like sticking to the facts. And then there's going to be times where things happen that are maybe premeditated or things that are happening that are really hurtful, and they're done to, on purpose to hurt. And I deal with that with the ex-husband all the time. There are things that are just like bombs that are lobbed my way, and some of them are nuclear, you know, and they're stuck <laughs> and they're intended to hurt. And so, what am I going to do with that? And so, what I do with then is just go with the facts. The facts are this is what's happened. The facts are this is what was said. The facts are da da da. Okay, fine. And stop with the facts and just move on. Because the minute I attach stories to it, the minute I turn it into drama, then we're going to go through the five R's. So what happens, because in every one of our relationships, we are in one of the R's somewhere in, in mm -hmm. each relationship. So we learn to start recognizing those and then knowing what to do about it. So again, with the rejection, if I nip that in the bud and stick to the facts, I'm going to be okay. I won't go into the five R's. Um, if I realize I'm already in resentment to someone, in resentment is... Um, I'm resenting that this person has made me feel rejected or I'm feeling rejected because of something that they've done. And um, so then the solution to that is, first off, I need to notice that I'm in resentment. And the way I'm going to notice that is that comes out my mouth. <laughs> and you can tell women that are bitter because it comes out our mouth. You know, our little mm -hmm. stilettos come out. But I would be like, well, she needs to do that and he needs to do that. And, well, I'm not perfect, but... Those are all drama words. And if we're talking in that kind of conversation, that's all drama. That is someone who is in resentment to another human being. And so the solution to that is to shift into gratitude. And so then it's like, I'm really grateful that I was part of this event. I'm really grateful that I'm in relationship with these people. Isn't it fun to be here and see everybody together? Um, it's, you know, I'm thankful for... So when we shift into gratitude, we shift out of the resentment. Mm -hmm. And then the next one that we would go into is the resistance. And that would be, I mean, <laughs> couples do it all the time. We give each other the silent treatment. But mm -hmm. parents and kids do it all the time. And we do it at work, you know. So when I'm giving somebody the silent treatment or when I'm not making eye contact with them, I'm in resistance to that person. And that's followed after the resentment. So what do I do? That's where, when I notice that this is what I'm doing, I have to make a shift and say, I'm going to engage. And so I need to make eye contact, and I need to talk, and I need to ask a question and find out how that person is doing. Build that bridge again. We have to keep that bridge open. And if the other person is in resistance, we can build a, a bridge by engaging with them and asking about them. How are you? 
how's things going at work? And noticing little things that would maybe just make their day better, but it's an, a re-engagement. And I will say one of the best questions there, and this comes from Renee Brown, but the story I'm making up in my head right now about this, and that's when I did that with Hannah, that was coming out of resistance and re-engaging with her. And the story I'm making up in my head right now about this is, and that's really, really important. Um, and when you ask that question or when you make that statement, generally you're going to find out, guess what? They weren't thinking about you at all. Once in a while they were, and then you can open a dialogue. And um, it's better, I think Jordan Peterson said, it's better to have an uncomfortable conversation and fix it than to go down the road and end up with a broken relationship. And he said, sometimes you're in an uncomfortable conversation for maybe three months while you work through something. But he said, that's far better than having a broken relationship down the road. So it's building up the courage to say, this is what I'm thinking, this is what I'm feeling, and um, be able to fix that. So then the other one that comes along after, if we move past resistance, then we move into revenge. And revenge is when I'm noticing that I want that person to feel how I feel. I want them to feel the same hurt that I feel. And revenge is where, you know, we watch a lot of television movies, a lot of drama movies about mm -hmm. that sort of thing. And, you know, sometimes, you know, it's good to go, yeah, you had it coming. Oh, yeah, that's revenge. Um, and you can tell that you're in revenge. A lot of times things will be coming out of your mouth or you're thinking them in your head. Things like, well, now he knows how it feels. Or right. serves her right. Or he had it coming, right? That's so <laughs> now. And so the opposite way to fix that is to practice generosity. And if you can practice generosity with the person that you're in revenge with, it breaks that cycle immediately. Mm. Now, there are going to be times where it's not healthy to be practicing generosity with the person who is attacking you. So, for mm. instance, with my ex-husband, it's not a good idea for me to like be extra generous in that department. Um, if you've got someone who's, you know, stolen something from you or someone who is, um, you know, the attorney that's out for your jugular or the partner who's ripped you off at your company, those aren't the people to be generous with, but you do need to be generous. So find another person that you can be generous with. If you don't practice that, then you run into that bitterness. Trust me. I've been there. <laughs> and um, my friend Steve Binkley says, he says, people do what they do for their own reasons, and it rarely has anything to do with you. Mm. People do what they do for their own reasons, and it rarely has anything to do with you, which is back to my daughter that Saturday morning. She was acting the way she was acting for her own reasons, and it had nothing to do with so if we keep that in mind, too, and give people the benefit of the doubt, we can stay out of the five R's. And the repeat thing happens a lot in families. Like, how many people will not have an aunt? Remember Aunt So-and-so? Oh, who's got So-and-so mad at this holiday? You know, and which kid in, at the, you know, when all the siblings get together is going to pout to get their way? And which one is going to... So those, when you see those things happening over and over again, those are people that are in the five R's and they're in the repeat cycle. So we just come to expect it. We expect that one member of our family is not going to be talking to another member of the family. And we like accept it and just let it go rather than, wait, this isn't okay. We're not going to continue to do this. But, you know, you'll, you'll hear it. We laugh about it. Yeah, yeah.
you know, who's, who's aunt so-and-so not talking to this one. <laughs> Those are repeats. Very good. Wow. Well, thank you for sharing the five R's with us. This has been so completely amazing to hear how you figured these out and how you've been able to apply this process in your life so that it, it stops the cycle. That is so incredible. Um, we're going to take a quick break, but when we get back, will you talk about your final lesson? Divorce is an experience, not an identity. And then also share a little bit about some of the Bible verses that became important to you through all of these hard times. How many of you out there feel like your life is chaotic, crazy, and completely awful compared to the norm. What if I were to tell you that you are normal for you? I am so excited to announce that my book, Normal For Me by Tamara K. Anderson is now available for purchase on Amazon. This book took me 10 years to write and I share 20 years worth of lessons learned in my life detours, including being in a car accident and having two of my children diagnosed on the autism spectrum. In this book, I share the secrets of how I made it from despair to peace with God's help. I also include a bonus diagnosis survival guide at the very end of my Normal For Me book. The diagnosis survival guide includes 12 tips to survive and thrive in tough times. Wouldn't you like to know what those are? So what are you waiting for? Grab your copy of Normal For Me today on Amazon. And we're back. I'm speaking to Peggy Sue Wells about her experiences in and the lessons she learned after going through a divorce. She has already shared with us that God is at work in all of this. And he remains in control, and this is not a surprise to him. She also shared with us the five R's, which are so powerful, and how to break that cycle. Peggy Sue, there were two more lessons that you wanted to share. What were those? Well, the first one was that God is teaching me something about himself in every situation. And that flipped my thinking from when something crummy happens and I start to go into this panic of, oh my gosh, how am I going to handle this? One more big deal. Um, instead, I've learned that God isn't mean. He's allowing things, you know, horrible things to happen to me. Everything that he is allowing into my life or bringing into my life or setting into my life, there is something about him that he wants me to, to learn. I don't know a lot about God. I mean, the guy is just like, you know, unfathomable. There's so much to him that we'll never know everything there is to know about God. But he has a lot that he needs me to know about him. And so he will teach me something in every situation. And so it has absolutely changed that I don't get into that freak out, panic mode where you get mad and, and frustrated and all that. I don't do that anymore. I just kind of like, okay. What are you teaching me in this? And then I just walk through it with him. So like I had a window come down, or not a window, <laughs> I had a tree come down in the wind and it hit my bedroom window and busted it. And oh. yeah, and luckily this is the most bizarre thing. I think it's just God showing me something like about, I really have this all in control, Peggy Sue. It is a double pane window. There's a fourth of an inch between the two panes. 
-hmm. the outside pane broke from a tree that was so tall that we were going to take it down the next day. It's hilarious it came down when it did. Mm -hmm. um, but we were going to have to like rope it and pull it way over. But it came down and it hit that window and busted the outside pane and not the inside pane. Mm -hmm. I still have a window that is intact on the inside. And I've left it there for several months. I've just put it on my list today that I should fix it. Because it reminds me, within a quarter of an inch, this tree that is two stories tall and taller than my house came down and only hit that outside pane and not the inside pane. So it's all fixable. I didn't freak out. I just kind of went, huh. <laughs> and then it's like, okay, God, what are you showing me here? And I really think he wants me to know that he's in the details, that he can do it within a hair's width, that he really is in control. Um, so when things come up, I just put one foot in front of the other. Okay, what are you showing me in this? What are you showing me? And then I just hand it over to him too. I'm like, this is yours, God. I'm going to walk through it. You're going to have to show me how. And he does if I don't get ahead of him. But um, yeah, God is teaching me something. So all of these calamities, they're not calamities. They're actually, what is he teaching me? He's come into my life to teach me something in this moment about him. And I also end up learning an awful lot about me in the process. Mm -hmm. And it's not always the nicest. It's always good to know. I did ask God one time. I said, God, show me my heart. And after two or three days, I had to say, God, stop. <laughs> because it wasn't pretty. I was surprised at how, because, you know, it, the scripture says that the heart is, you know, evil. You know, And I'm like, no, you know, that's not this one. I'm, I just got little things, not big things. But yeah, when I saw my responses and the things that came up that from, you know, in those two days when God was showing me my heart, I'm like, okay, stop. Don't show me anymore. Now help me fix it. You know, mm -hmm. please get in there and clean it out because I want to be your girl. I want to be God's girl. I don't want to be who you just showed me that I am naturally without you. Mm -hmm. um, so God's always teaching me something about him and teaching me something about myself. And so when I feel that way about things, I don't go into a big panic and I don't go into a big freak out anymore and I can handle things easier and I can listen. I've also learned in my conversation, I have to take out the three C's and an E and the kids and I will once in a while poke each other and go, Hey, we got, we got to get back to it. But through three C's, criticizing, condemning, and oh golly, complaining, criticizing, condemning, and complaining have to come out of my vocabulary and then excuses. If I make an excuse to you about why I don't have my homework, the only person who believes that excuse is me, and I know it's a lie. So mm. no excuses. You just take full responsibility for how things are. No excuses. And that streamlines life a lot better. Uh, there was um, The other thing that I wanted to talk about was because we didn't have part of our family with us, I had to remind our children that we were still a family. Families come in different sizes, and they come in different dynamics. We were still a family and we were going to behave like one. So the one thing that I did every single day is I did Bible time with my kids. And if we were out and we had been coming home late, I still read a Psalm to them, but I wanted them to have the word in their head every single day. I wanted them to go to sleep with it in their mind. And kids that have nightmares, we would pray together. We would read more scripture and the nightmares would go away. But the Bible time became very, very, very important because that's, that's, 
that's life. It's all in the scriptures. So I have on my website, PeggySueWells.com, there's how we did Bible time. But it was all about what we read and what we, um, what we memorized and what we sang and just how we did it so that all of my kids, they had all the books of the Bible memorized by the time they were five so that way they could thumb through their books and they could find them. When they could memorize the books of the Bible and, and recite them, we gave them their own Bible. And then I taught them how to get in there and mark it up. I taught them to read as, as soon as they could read, read a chapter each day. And then I gave them a little journal and they would write the date. They would write the chapter. They would write a verse out of it that they liked. And if there was a word in there, they didn't know what it was. They would write that down and we would look it up and find out what it meant. And I've got lots of Bible journals. The kids, when they grew up and left, they left them here and I still have them. And I love those. And they're all walking with the Lord right now, and I'm grateful for that like you cannot believe because that is the most important thing. The most important thing is that you have eternal life, that you have salvation, that you have a relationship with the God that created you. So mm -hmm. I knew the most important thing was Bible time. So we did that every day. And then also that a parent, single parent needs to be consistent and courageous. And when there's visitations because the kids go to another, another parent, when they go over there, the rules are different and they're told things that are not, you know, fun about the other parent. And there's just a lot of drama. And there's a temptation to think, oh, I need to be nice to the kids and make it so they like it here. Or they're going to go over to that parent. They're going to go live there. I'll lose them too. And that's mm -hmm. a huge reality for a split family. Mm -hmm. And what I realized was my kids needed me to be consistent. They needed me to be strong. They needed me not to be their friend but to be their parents. Uh, there's a, they only have one mom. They can have lots of friends, but they only have one mom. And so I needed to be courageous and consistent as they grew up. Now that they're adults, we're more on the friend, you know, friend to friend thing because we're adult to adult and it's different. But when they were young, they needed something that they could count on. And you know what? If, if they ended up going to the other parent, I've seen that happen. Sometimes it does. You know, a lot of times those kids come back to the consistent, strong parent because they know that this is where it's healthier. Um, I had one child who wanted, you know, thought about going to live with the other parent, and we went and met with the counselor about it. And I went down all my rules why I didn't think this was a good idea. And the counselor asked the kid, well, the kid was going to get all kinds of freedom there that they don't get mm -hmm. here. That was the bottom line. Mm -hmm. And so my counselor, I loved it. He listened to both sides. And the counselor kind of said, now, is anybody going to help you with the homework? Is anybody going to make sure that you're doing this? Anybody gonna... And the kid's like, no, that's, that's the party. That's why I want to go there. Mm -hmm. And the counselor leaned forward, I remember, to my child and said, I'm going to ask you to stay where you are. I'm going to ask you to stay where you're going to do the best for where you want to go in your future. And it worked. That child stayed. So, but, you know, that's that consistency and that courage. Um, also, we needed uh, to come apart regularly. We have to watch a funny movie. We have to laugh. We have to go play a game. We have to get in the car with Tupperware and go to the beach someplace and just get wet and, you know, come back that day, just a day trip if that's when it's, what's necessary. There's camps. There's parks. You can go just take a hike. But if you do not come apart, you will come apart. Mm. And so we learned that I needed to get away someplace every quarter. I have friends that have cabins. I would ask if I could borrow it for a weekend. I would ask, can I go? Um, but we found lots of ways that we needed to get away and get out and just clear our head and see that there was a world far bigger than what was our problems and our tensions and our hard parts. 
And my kids will tell you they've been to every museum on the planet. That means we still have three days. <laughs> so yep. off we would go. Um, so come apart or you will come apart. And then a family compass. We had a list of these are the things that wells do and these are the things that wells don't do. And it's mm -hmm. a short list because we can't keep up with a lot of them. But wells don't hit one another. We don't call each other bad names. We don't steal each other's stuff. And we do what mom says the first time. Those were the, that's what wells do. And, oh, no lying. Sorry. There's also that we were honest. And so you could just count on that. And we needed those things that we could count on. Um, healthy relationships. The way that we did the healthy relationships was we gathered every day to do Bible time together. And then um, there's... Um, we tried to check in with each other. We had meals together all the time, and we had healthy meals. And so there were those kind of, like, touch points. A family needs touch points, and they need regular touch points. And I would say make sure that you're eating dinner together at least three times a week um, because you have to be together to know how everybody is. Mm -hmm. And then um, my kids all have different interests, and they all have different interests from me. and. A lot of times when you're a single parent, there's all the what we cannot do, what we can't do. And I didn't want to go there. And so instead, when they would come with their different ideas, I would say, wow, that's a good idea. How can we make that happen? And that was always my question. How can we make that happen? My son wanted to learn to fly a plane. How can we make that happen? Well, I found the Civil Air Patrol. You can join that for free. It is the civilian branch of the Air Force. And they will teach you how to fly. So wow. he, fly, he flew gliders and he flew powered flights before he had his license. My hmm. other daughter said, Mom, I'm in a big hurry to, I want to be a paramedic. How, you know, what do I have to do to get out of high school? I don't want to wait till I'm 18. I'm like, all right. So I printed out, this is what it, you have to do. These are the courses. This is what you have to do to have an honors diploma for high school. So she finished at age 16. And then we sent her through EMT. And then we signed her up for paramedic, and they came back and said, she can't come in. She has to be of legal age. And I said, what if I sign for her? And they said, well, then you're taking responsibility. When she goes on her practicums and stuff, you're taking responsibility. If something goes wrong, you're, gonna, you're, you're reliable. Or you're liable. And I said, you know what? I believe in my daughter. I trust her. I will sign that paper. And mm. she became a paramedic um, before she was old enough to drive the ambulance. Oh, gosh. So, so she was on the, on the team, and they had to wait for her to be able to drive until she was older. So when I would say to them, how can we make this happen, it engaged them into the process of, you know, the world's really big. Let's see what we can do. So, mm -hmm. I, you know, for that, for parents, I think it's really important. How can we make this happen? And then engage them in the idea process and um, make it a, a life of possibilities rather than, all the things we can't do, I'd really rather look at all the things we can do. And when you look at all the movies and the books, they're all written about the people that broke through the rules anyway. You know, it's mm -hmm. always about the people that did something fantastic. So why not us? Yeah, no, that is fantastic. Wow. What amazing bits of wisdom, not only about the lessons learned, but how you were able to not let this divorce define you or your family and just say, we're a family and here's how we behave. Having consistency there, so, so important. And, and also empowering your children, you know, 
and that is chores. Beautiful. Oh my gosh, we had chores every single day. We woke up and everybody had a chore. The chore takes 20 to 30 minutes to do. You know, back in the downstairs, go chore the horses, you know, whatever. You had a chore and you did it all week long. And it was up on a chart. I'm not going to keep reminding you. And if you got tired of doing laundry that week, you could turn it over to the next kid next week if you had done it well. If it's not done well, guess what? You keep it until it's done so well that you can hand it over. And I'm, I'm surprised that my kids that have all, every single one of them has called me sometime and said, remember those chores that you made us do? They just set us up that we're shining, outshining everybody where we are, you know, at work or in the military or whatever, just because... It's that simple, but they won't do it. You know, they have mm. to be told, they have to be baby, they have to be reminded. We just go do it. But mm. we would do that one chore quickly in the morning, and that was very, very important to teach them responsibility and the ability to do things on their own. And every time somebody wanted to learn to do something, I would empower them by teaching them and giving them the opportunity. The more they could do, the less I had to. Right. I know. That is so true. Amazing. Wow. Well, Peggy Sue, what, what Bible verses became meaningful to you through all of this? I love Isaiah 40, 11, because it talks about God carrying the lambs and those that have young, that he gently guides those with young. And I'm like, that's me. I have seven young. <laughs> and he <would laughs> gently guiding. And I love that idea of having that shepherd who would do that because I needed that shepherd. And then the other one was Ephesians 3, I think it's 14 through 20. And I read that over and over and over again. I give it to everybody that I come across because it talks about that God's love is so deep and so tall and so huge and so wide and so just un unending that it's hard for us to comprehend it. But the prayer in Ephesians is, that God would give us the grace to be able to comprehend how crazy in love God is with us. And mm. we all need that. And for those that have been hurt really bad or betrayed or somebody's left them, you know, we need to know we're loved because we kind of feel unlovable. Mm -hmm. And so that would be your advice to people who feel unlovable. Read that every day. Read Ephesians Read 3, 14 through 20. Absolutely. <laughs> Read it, internalize it, and realize you are loved. Well, oh I go goodness. through scripture. I think it's in, was it in John, the I am's. You know, circle the I am's, find all the I am's in there. And which I am do you need the most right now? And find, go through scripture and just highlight all the times that God talks about his love and his grace. And mm. highlight all the scriptures that help you. Um, make it yours. Yeah. No, I, I have found the same thing to be true with me. And I love internalizing what I learned. And it's amazing what God will teach you as you read. You know, sometimes you maybe have read that chapter 10 times and you read it with a different circumstance in your life and something else jumps out at you and you're like, oh, has that been there the whole time? <laughs> I think scripture is like multi-layered. And so I think when we're first, we get the first layer and then we start digging down, we start digging down. And then pretty soon you start connecting from other places in the Bible and you're like, Oh my gosh, it just never ends. There's always something to discover. Yes, that's very true. So spend some time in the scriptures daily. <laughs> Good advice, right? Um, what resources would you recommend to other people who have been through divorce or through hard times um, or websites? Or what, what, what would you recommend? Um, if you go to my website, uh, PeggySueWells.com, I have up there 
all the instructions for free. You can download them for free um, for family devotions. And again, take the stuff that I did, but then make it work for your family. Go ahead and you know do the part you like. Don't do the part you don't like. But it'll give you a starting place. Because I know when I was first with the children, they kept saying, do devotions, do family devotions. I'm like, what is family devotions? And so <laughs> reading the Bible, I'm like, oh, okay. And, you know, teaching the children to pray. It's super simple, but I had no idea what to do. So there's family devotions there, and it'll take the kids it grows. So it goes from when they're tiny up until they're um, in high school. And then I also have up there questions for healthy conversations. Sometimes we have stopped talking to one another, so we don't even know how to have a conversation. And when every time you get together for Thanksgiving with all the family, people are nitpicking or throwing those little, you know, those little emotional bombs or whatever, show up with your list of these really excellent, com these excellent conversation starters. Like, who are your heroes? You know, living or dead, who are your heroes? If you could go back and talk to yourself at age 18, what would you say? So there's a whole list of 20 questions there that you could throw out Anytime you're in a group, I told my kids, always have a question ready because you never know when one of your heroes actually shows up. I mean, you and I have had the opportunity to spend several days with Richard Paul Evans. Mm -hmm. You need a question, you know, otherwise we just kind of sit there just sort of like, you know, not able to be involved in the conversation. So here's a list of good questions that you can talk to anybody. You can ask anyone and you can get the conversation going. And then also I have characteristics of healthy families. That's up there too. So you can take a look at, you know, where your family fits. And then you kind of know, like, if you are going to get a mentor for your family, these are some areas where we're a little weak or some areas that we, that we need to work on. And then um, I did write a book called Rediscovering Your Happily Ever After, Moving from Hopeless to Hopeful for the Newly Divorced Mother. Ooh, so that sounds fantastic. If you're single or becoming single, if you're in the process of being unmarried, as my friend calls it, I was in the process of becoming unmarried. Um, <laughs> rediscovering your happily ever after is very, very helpful. And then, you know, sometimes we are so done with the heavy, we're just done with the heavy. So I did write Homeless for the Holidays, and it's a Christmas novella, and it is about a family, upscale family, that lose they lose it all and find they have everything. And so it's done in a way that there's humor and you've got the family members there and it's contemporary so you can relate to it. But the thing that's nice about the novella is that you can go with someone else as they lose it all because while we have feeling that we're losing it all or we have lost it all, now we can read it in a way we can watch somebody else go through it and we can watch their transition because they come out on the other side far better than they were at the beginning of the book. And that's really our story if we allow that to happen. So Homeless for the Holidays, um, so you can read through it and you can gain and it's not gonna hurt. That is beautiful. Oh my goodness. Well, thank you for this list of resources and your, your website is PeggySueWells.com. Where can we find you on social media? Yeah, I have Twitter, it'll just be Peggy Sue Wells, Facebook, Peggy Sue Wells. I'm just pretty like boring that way. Pretty <laughs> um, and if you go on Amazon, because I have uh, my 29th book just went off to the publisher last week, but all my books are on Amazon. So you can find me there and you can download anything. You can order anything. Um, my two most recent books are Homeless for the Holidays and then Chasing Sunrise. And Chasing Sunrise is kind of a novel of my heart, but it is lots of adventure and page turning 
suspense and a little bit of romance in there, just enough to keep you reading. But it happens in 1989, and it is um, a special ops guy who things went badly for him, so he goes to the island of St. Croix to recoup. And while he's there, all these international bad guys and Hurricane Hugo come bulldozing onto his island. And now, does he have the skills that he can save them, all those people that he cares about, with these two things coming at him? Wow. Okay, I got to go get it. <laughs> I, you know, I've had so many people say that they feel like they're actually diving. They feel like they're actually on an island while they're reading the book. That is awesome. Well, thank you, Peggy Sue, for diving deep with us today and giving us probably more valuable tips than I have heard in a long time. Thank you, thank you, thank you for sharing the wisdom of what you have learned through your hard times and giving us hope. Hey, thanks so much for listening to today's show. I know that there are many of you out there that are going through a hard time, and I hope you found things that have been useful today as you listen to the podcast. If you would like to access the show notes from today's podcast, visit my website. It is storiesofhopepodcast.com. That is where you'll find favorite quotes from today's episode and shareable memes. And those are fun because you can share them with your friends on social media. You will also find the links mentioned throughout today's episode, so you don't have to remember what those were. And also all the tips that were shared. Sometimes tips are shared so much throughout an episode, you forget what were those great things. So go to the show notes, storiesofhopepodcast.com to look up these fantastic resources. You know, if someone kept coming to mind during today's episode, perhaps that means that you should share this with them. Maybe there was a story shared or a tip that they really, really need to hear. So go ahead and share this episode with them. May God bless you, especially if you are struggling with hope to carry on and with the strength to keep going when things get tough. Remember to walk with Christ and he will help bear that burden. Above all else, Remember, God loves you.